Buy with Rob is your best choice when purchasing your new home in the Puget Sound area. Call 360-710-9425 today and get started on the best home buying experience you will ever have. Go to buywithrob.com today. Hey, this is Whitey from the Ale Evangelist Show, and you're listening to the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. Hey, did I tell you guys I got a goat? Canada uh, could uh, accommodate the species so long as you invested $100 million to put in ephemeral ponds, change the loblolly pines to long leaf, and do all this. Well, it, it, has, it has to be, according to the service here, reasonable efforts. And What's the definition of reasonable? I, something that, I mean, for, for one thing, I, I think there's a big distinction between whether, the, whether in this case, the upland habitat uh, has been transformed to such an extent that it's destroyed, like if there was a shopping center there or a housing development there, as compared to the upland uh, habitat here. But why, why, trees, why is that so, Mr. Needler, though? I mean, it might be uh, a few more dollars to pull up the asphalt. A little column A, a little column B. Yeah, baby. <laughs> what? Hey, good morning, good evening, or good afternoon, wherever you are, whatever you do. A lot of things happen in the world today. Most of them are far beyond our control, you might say. So perhaps it's time we took a pause and thought about life and thought about the laws of gravity, the Constitution, the Fifth Amendment, the Eighth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, frogs, climate, politics, and or the news. Don't touch that dial. Just try to hear me out for a while. One of the things I wish is that more people really understood the nexus between the Constitution and your day-to-day life. I mean, we get it on a big macro scale, but, man, each and every day, it affects me. And trust me, the courts have been busy over the past, busy, see what I did there? Busy as bees. Over the past week, it's not funny if you have to explain it. The courts have been busy over the last week, and if you happen to love liberty, it's been a pretty decent week. Here's how you get a hold of me. The text machine is area code 209-565-DAVE. That's 209-565-3283. The email is dave at thedavebowmanshow.com. And, of course, we're on the web. Just look for The Dave Bowman Show on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes. And using your preferred non-denominational web search browser, you can go to thedavebowmanshow.com or podcast99.org. Get the show live or on demand. Eloqui conizio. No, that's not right. We changed that. Ego BRB Capulus with Ali Viveri. I drink coffee that others might live. <laughs> when I first started doing Constitution Thursday, back in January of 2010, it's hard to believe sometimes we're coming up on nine years of Constitution Thursday. When I started doing this, I did it. It was reactionary. I was concerned with the idea that Given the political environment of that day, the use of the term constitution, constitutional, you know, what we believed about the constitution was in danger of being assumed by political machinations. In other words, I was concerned that standing there on the radio saying that's not constitutional without really knowing whether it was or not. I mean... I assumed that something wasn't constitutional, but you know what happens when you assume. You make an ass out of you and me. And what I quickly discovered, I mean, we just, when we started going through it in January of 2010, and then reset and started again in 2013, um, and then, you know, with the continuing with the podcast and, and doing uh, some of the things that we've done, I'm I'm very proud of Constitution Thursday. I've said this before. I think it's... Of, of all the things I've done in radio, I'm, I'm most proud of that. Not only the original uh, sections, the, the first two years, three years, where we, we went through the entirety of the Constitution, uh, not, as, not as consistently as I had hoped originally, and uh, we did lose an entire month's worth of episodes, but the, the fact that I learned in that process, the things that I learned in that process were amazing to me, let alone to my understanding of how things work. 
and why they work that way. I can tell you that my opinions, my personal beliefs about some things changed because they had to. That's the thing about facts is when you're presented with facts, you have to look at them and if the facts don't fit your agenda. Well, you either change your agenda or you ignore the facts. And the truth of the matter is, is that you can't ignore reality. You can't ignore facts. They are what they are for a reason. And so it changed a lot of how I saw things. I don't know that it changed my political opinions. It didn't necessarily change my political beliefs. It didn't necessarily divert me from or stop me from being a conservative originalist, in my definition, not the way the media defines that. But it, but it did change how I looked at things, and, and my, it, it enhanced my passion. As I wish John were here for this. It enhanced my passion for following the rules. It really did. The rules are the rules for a reason, and it's when where we get into trouble as a society and in in trouble as a country is when we just decide, well, we're not going to follow the rules. We're just going to do what feels good, as the saying used to go. I've said this on numerous occasions. If we as a nation want to do something, I don't know, pick something, have gay marriage, there's a process by which we do that. If we want to ban guns, if we as a country decide we're going to ban guns— There's a process by which we do that. And where the controversy comes in is when we don't follow that process. The problem with following a process, of course, is that there are going to be people who don't like the process because it's not going to do what they want done. And therein lies the problem. Then you start getting into these extracurricular, you know, let's uh, let's bypass all that stuff. But I've I've discovered a lot of things along the way, learned a lot of history. I, I'm very proud of, of what we've done in going through some of these things. I'm very proud of some of the, the uh, sessions we've done uh, post-radio with the, with the convention episodes, the ratification episodes, which are not complete. I, I, I guess that's my one, my one thing that I feel like I failed in uh, with, with Constitution Thursday is we've not finished the ratification episodes, and I keep promising myself I'm going to get back to those. But there's so much interesting stuff happening, it's hard, to, it's hard to justify dropping those things to go back to ratification issues and the history of all that. Anyway, it's all available at ConstitutionThursday.com if you ever want to catch up on those things and get back in it. I find it fascinating because I, I, what I didn't realize a long time ago was how much of this stuff is impacted on a day-to-day basis. In other words... What a court ruled in 1971, how does that affect me today? And why does it affect me today? And why are we still talking about it today? And those sorts of things, things that happened 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago that still impact how we see things. Uh, We've recently had the argument over illegal immigration, and we've had the discussion about originalist intent versus court's interpretation. And it's real easy to go, well, that's not what the people who wrote it meant. It might not be what they meant, but (laughs) for the last hundred years, this is the way we've interpreted it. And this is the way we've passed our laws to meet its, its goals. And so we have to understand these elements of things. The, these, this idea that the constitution written the way it was, doesn't necessarily mean that that's the way it's applied. We have a process that we followed, and we have a process that we get to to make things happen ultimately for the benefit of society. Sometimes those things are, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, yeah, wrong. Mistakes are made. I, I, don't, I don't think there's anybody that would argue that every decision the court has ever made is correct. I mean, there's there's been some doozies uh, with the court. Uh, there's been some some problematic decisions that were made along the way. Decisions that were made for political reasons, even though the court is supposed to be apolitical, th- that had functional repercussions in, in day-to-day life in America. Maybe not where you live, but certainly in other places. I mean, it, it, it's... It, it's a little interesting to see, and sometimes they're not always the big ones. Sometimes they're not always, you know, the ones that you the, the ones that make the newspaper where people are complaining about how 
you know, this case is going to change everything. And I have a theory about anything that any headline that says this changes everything (laughs) changes nothing. So you can safely ignore the article. But there are a lot of things that come across that seem small. Egg Shen says that in Big Trouble in Little China, which for some reason they're remaking. I don't know. I found that out this week, too. The Rock is going to play Jack Burton in the reboot of Big Trouble in Little China. Anyway, Egg Shen in the movie says it's very small. That's how old things begin. Very small. And then they become big. 37 years ago, 37 years ago, there was a place called Pole Town. You may or may not know about it. It was a little enclave, as my son would call it, suburb of Detroit. It's right on the Detroit border there. And it was known as Pole Town because it was heavily ethnically Polish. I got a good friend of mine that's married to a, a gal that's ethnically Polish. And this was an enclave wherein people had lived in America with their Polish culture from the old country for a hundred years. There were Polish bakeries and Polish businesses. It was not unusual to hear Polish being spoken on the streets. But it was a place where people had come to love America and they had come to, to, to enjoy the privileges and immunities of all the citizens of America. But like most places in the in the time period that we're talking about 37 years ago, the economy was not strong. It was in the early 80s, if you recall, we were coming out of the, what did Carter call it, the malaise of the 1970s. Uh, Morning in America hadn't really started yet with the Reagan uh, reboot of other things. And it was it was not uncommon. The, the automobile business especially had been hit very, very hard. For those of you not old enough to remember this, in the late 70s, mid to late 70s, the automobile industry, particularly Detroit, took a huge hit. Why? Well, there were a lot of factors involved with it, but the main one was gas prices. Um, Americans had long lived with very cheap gas, very cheap gas, and Cars that were built to burn it. Um, Those of us who are old enough to remember the cars of the 60s and 70s will remember that these were basically tanks with wheels. I mean, my dad had a 57 Chevy Nomad station wagon. They didn't build a lot of these things, but we had one of those. And it was, I I just remember that thing being rock solid. If we'd ever gotten in an accident in that thing, we never did. But had we ever gotten in an accident, I'd feel sorry for whatever we would have hit or whatever would have hit us. It was, uh, my dad had a Ford F-250 something pickup truck, same thing. I mean, these cars were heavy and speed limits were 80 miles an hour and gas mileage was, you know, on a good day, you could get 10 miles to the gallon in these cars. And along came the gas shortage of the 1970s, the gas crisis, the OPEC embargo, and a lot of issues in the early 1970s, early to mid 1970s where gas prices suddenly went from, I don't know, I remember as low as 12 cents a gallon to upwards of 60 cents a gallon seemingly overnight. I I had a teacher, I had a school teacher in the fifth grade. Yeah, it was fifth grade. It was at Eagleton. And he was our science teacher who had planned a long planned a trip to go to Canada. He wanted to go see Canada. And so he had planned a trip to Canada and he was complaining one day in class that he had to cancel his trip to Canada. And in one of the first political diatribes that I ever witnessed, my science teacher was just going off about the fact that he was not going to pay 60 cents a gallon for gas. That was ridiculous, he said. That was absurd. That was outrageous. And and so he ended up not going to Canada. I later planned a trip to Canada that I also did not go to, but for completely different reasons. Sorry, it's complete aside. I had planned to take a 30-day leave and go to Canada when I was going to to Churchill, Canada. I was going to go see the whales and the bears. I had my car specially modified, carry extra gas. I had the whole trip planned out. And then the, the CEO came out and said, no more 30 day leaves. You can only take two weeks. I can't get to Churchill and back in two weeks. I mean, I could, but I wouldn't enjoy it. Anyway, point being that cars took a big hit in the seventies because gas prices were so high and these cars were getting such terrible gas miles, 10, 12, 15 miles to the gallon. If you were 
if you had a, a really good one. And so American cars really fell out of favor. They were very expensive, very, very gas unfriendly. And if you've ever, if you remember that era, if you remember that time, there was a lot of, I don't want to call it, there were racial overtones to it, but it wasn't racist. But there was a lot of complaints by people that were having to buy Japanese cars because Japanese cars were good on gas mileage and they were cheap. And of course, this upset a lot of uh, World War II veterans at the time. I remember them griping about it. I can't believe you bought a Japanese car. Can't believe you did that. Buy American, buy American. But the problem was American cars were, they were becoming problematic. They were, their, their quality was just going downhill. I mean, that's something that nobody ever really wants to talk about is the fact that the quality of American cars was, was really bad. And so this e- economic impacts, particularly in the Detroit area where cars are built, were built and still are built to this day, um, was, was definitively felt as car plants began closing and all the ancillary stuff that goes with that. I mean, Ben and I were reading about uh, food chains last night, and we were talking about how the um, kelp forests and, and, and otters eat the, they eat the sea urchins, which eats the kelp. So if you kill all the sea otters, then the, the urchins eat all the kelp. There's no kelp, and the oceans get bad. Anyway, we were talking about all this, and the same thing happens in cars. If you, if you don't build cars, then you don't need rubber for tires and you don't need glass for windows and you don't need rubber for windshield wipers and you don't need leather for seats and you don't, uh, there's, uh, there's hundreds upon hundreds of ancillary stuff that goes out the window too. And those things take hits. Think about, go out and just look at your car for a while and imagine if you will, the food chain, and I'm doing the air quote thing here, the food chain of stuff that's in your car and how it got to be there. And you can see where the the failure of the car industry really affects a lot of other things. Steel, aluminum, motor parts. I mean, it was a mess. It really was. And so in the early 1980s, the car manufacturers in the state of Michigan hit on an idea that they would build some new car plants to build American cars that could compete with the Japanese cars. And the uh, even at that time, wasn't the Yugo, I think the Yugo was just starting to come on, the Yugoslavian car was actually starting to come on the market, the Korean cars, uh, the the cars that were cheap, good gas mileage, and, you know, I mean, they weren't, they were not the classic American cars with tail fins. I mean, they just, they let's face it. They look like crap, but but they were cheap and they got good gas mileage, was what, which is what consumers wanted at that point. And so the state of Michigan, city of Detroit, a couple of other cities around the state hit on this idea of building new plants to do this. But they would have to build new plants to do these things. They, they didn't they either couldn't or wouldn't retool the old plants to do this. They had to build new ones. And so they looked around and they started seeing land that was either under that they had decided was underutilized or improperly utilized or simply available near where they wanted to be. And they began to envision the idea of building these new car plants on this land. One of those places was Pole Town, which was again a a thriving community of Polish descended Americans, but it was impoverished like everywhere else and this this idea, this this particular one, was right where they wanted to build a car plant. So they got together with the, the car companies in the state of Michigan, and they they took the land. They used what a process known as eminent domain to take the land there in Pole Town, and they built a plant, a GM assembly plant, Detroit Hamtramck, otherwise known as Pole Town. They built this in... Uh, there was a lot of resistance to this. The Pole Town people <laughs> didn't want to move. They liked their land. They liked their houses. They liked their businesses. They liked their little town, even though things were a little tough. But they'd been through tough things before. 
And they knew that ultimately they believed they would survive that. But here comes the government, the state of Michigan, saying, nope, we're taking your land because if we don't take your land, we won't get this plant, which will come with jobs, and the economy will get better. Ta-da! See? It's kind of one of those, the, 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 the what is the, the Spock, uh, the welfare of the many outweighs the welfare of the one. So the needs of the many outweigh the needs of one. So the idea here was they would take this land. And, of course, this went to a court fight in the state of Michigan. And in the state of Michigan, they argued that you are taking land. Now, the Fifth, the, the fifth Amendment of the United States says very clearly, no private property shall be taken for public use without just compensation. And this was one case of many, by the by, wherein there's a lot of meat on that bone, isn't there? So everybody understands this concept of private property. In fact, the the Constitution barely addresses the idea of private property outside of the Fifth Amendment because the framers and the founders of the country generally considered the right to property to be among the natural rights. In other words, they didn't need to define it because everybody understood it. James Madison added on to that, a government is institute to protect, instituted to protect property of all, every sort. This being the end of government, that alone is a just government, which impartially secures to every man whatever is his own. That's it. They, they didn't see the idea of a government just taking property as being in keeping with the natural rights of human beings. It wasn't just Americans. It was everybody. But then they threw this Fifth Amendment taking clause into the Fifth Amendment, which also deals with uh, some other things as well. But you start looking at this and you, you notice some things here. Private property, public use. Well, is a GM plant a public use or is that a private use? Are we taking somebody's private property to be used by another private entity for the for what? Now the argument is well it's for public benefit, public use in the fact that it's going to create jobs. Eh, okay. And then there's that without just compensation. Well, who decides what just compensation is? And you know as well as I do that for most of our history that that just compensation idea has been decided, oddly enough, by the government. The government decides what's just compensation for folks. The, the first jury I ever sat on, and I'm one of those weird people. I love being on jury duty. I don't get to do it enough in my book. I just, I, I've been on three juries and... I, I've enjoyed myself immensely all the time. The first one I ever sat on was a, a just compensation case between a man who had owned some property and the city that I lived in at the time that wanted to take a, a portion of his property. They didn't want to take the whole thing. They just wanted to take a piece of it. And so they just took it and they built what they wanted to build there, which happened to be a road. And... They gave him what they said his land was worth. And then they went out of their way. This was the funny part. They went out of their way. The government did. The government spent easily 10 times what that land was worth to prove that the land wasn't worth what they what he said it was worth. They, they showed that it was contaminated. They showed that it was overvalued. I mean, they, they brought in expert after expert to show to us that, you know, at the end of the day, this land isn't worth what he says it's worth. But they spent a buttload of taxpayers' dollars to prove that. And in the end, I think it was the, I just think it was the idea that the government was just steamrolling this guy and taking his pride. You know, it wasn't necessarily that he didn't want to sell it. He just didn't want to sell it for a third of what they said it was worth. And so we ended up finding in his favor. Anyway, point being that, who decides what this just compensation is? Well, the government does. And in the case of Pole Town, you can imagine these people were not being given what they thought the property 
should have been worth. They were they were being severely undercut and essentially forced out. They were being told, take it or leave it and get out so that we can build this GM plant here in Detroit, Hamtramck, and what is known as Pole Town. And everything will be great because we'll start building American cars that can compete with Japanese cars and Korean cars and Yugoslavian cars. And you'll benefit because everything will be better. Everything will be great, right? That's the, that's the theory of how this stuff works. And that's the theory of how they, they do these things. The, the case went all the way to the Michigan Supreme Court. It, did never, it never entered the federal court system. And this is important, and you need to, you need to understand this, because there's some, there's some reasonings here. The case went all the way to the Michigan Supreme Court, where in a very controversial and sharply divided opinion, the Michigan Supreme Court ruled that this was, in fact, just compensation, and it was, in fact, a reasonable taking. Now, there's a there's another element here that we don't we don't always talk about, which is this private property taken for public use. This public use thing is a problem because is it public use to take property to give to another entity to sell, give to another entity to create a private enterprise that then somehow economic generates economic benefits for everybody else in theory? Well, that's kind of what the Michigan Supreme Court decided. That that was okay, and it was it was a very difficult and a very controversial decision because now all of a sudden, well, where does this stop? What happens if the government decides that it wants your backyard for to to sell to somebody else so that they can do stuff in your backyard? Well, you can see where that's kind of a slippery slope. You can see where that's going to go downhill, and of course. It was just a few years later that the Supreme Court decided, again, sharply decided, sharply divided, and very controversial, decided the so-called Kelo case in New London, where the city of New London decided to eminent domain a bunch of land, take it for economic development by a private enterprise. And to this day, since the Kelo case was decided, the land that was eminent domain that was taken forcibly by the government has never been developed. It's still sitting empty to this day. It was never used. And in the Supreme Court case in Kelo, the Hamtrick case was actually looked at. It was not cited as part of that, but it was used as part of the rationalization for why Kelo was decided the way it was, which was that, look, even even if it's not the states can, the states have the power to restrict this. The case, the states could have decided that this was not a valid taking, but look, they did. And so the Supreme Court rationalized the the taking in Kilo as as acceptable, even though, again, the, the plan was put into place, the take, the reason for the taking was a complete and utter failure. And if you want to look at it in that light, Pole Town was completely seized. It was completely taken away from people. It was essentially, in, in so many ways, government stealing of private property. It was not the government protecting the property, as Madison had once said. The announcement this week by GM that it was closing certain plants, and again, I'm not convinced that that's a sign of a recession, but one of the plants that they're closing is the Hamtrank Pole Town plant. So they went to all that effort to take that land away from those people, not pay them what those people wanted for it, and now they're closing it. There's a lot of political arguments as to, you know, what's going on here with this plant. And I'm not, it's not the place for this today. What I want you to understand today is that the Michigan court eventually in 2004 actually overturned its own ruling on that and said it shouldn't have happened that way. A little too late, I think, unfortunately. But there's a a lesson here to be cautious about these takings. Uh, There's a lesson here that says... If you're a government and you want to just take things, you better be damn sure about what you're doing. Because it might come back to bite you later. i got to take a break. It's the Dave Bowman Show right here on the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network.
You are listening to The Dave Bowman Show on the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. Swear to God, I just stubbed my toe. I mean, literally just stubbed my toe as Rod Bowman was walking me back here. I'm sitting in a chair. I'm not even standing up. I'm not moving. I'm not walking. And I stubbed my toe on the, the desk here. Is I wonder how I'm still functioning. My body is just beat to snot. Welcome back. It is the Dave Bowman Show. If you want to join me? Text machine is area code 209 565 Dave. It's 565 3283. Thank you to Buster for his little comment there. I appreciate that very much. He was saying I should be proud of Constitution Thursday. It has inspired him. And I do appreciate that. I. I love the fact that people are willing to learn and willing to take these things on. And that's it's part of why I do this. And I've always said that if I ever stop doing The Dave Bowman Show, I will keep doing Constitution Thursday. Someday I want to write a book. I started to work on a book some years ago, but it went away. What I want to do, this is my dream, and this has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, which is Fifth Amendment talk. I want to write, I want to write a book that's kind of a constitutional Talmud. The Talmud, for those of you who don't know, is a discussion. And so you have this, take a verse out of the Torah and you put it out there. In the beginning, God created. I'm just using that as an example. And then you have, all around it, you have all these arguments and different debates. And um, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, kind of debates. It's very rabbinical. It's very... And so you get all of the debates around it on the page. And I, I've always wanted to do that with the Constitution. I just thought it would be fascinating. And we actually started working on it. If you look at the very early posts on Constitution Thursday, you'll see that they're of that nature. But it just never really took off. So we're talking about this Fifth Amendment takings case. We're talking about this whole thing with with this stuff. And, and again, the whole poll town thing, it never went to the Supreme Court of the United States. But the Michigan court was used by uh, Justice O'Connor in her writings about the about the Kelo case, as an example of, look, the states can handle this themselves. They don't really need us to do this. And we don't really need to get involved with it. But there have been other cases. We, we saw this week the case of the frogs. So this guy down in, I think it's Louisiana, uh, owns some land. And the land, he wants to do things with it. He wants to develop it. He wants to do this. And this is where you get into... This regulatory taking. See, Congress shall not take private property, be ta- nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. But what about a regulation that says you can't use it the way that you want to use it? Not a law, a regulation passed by a non-legislative body and enforced by, you know, bureaucrats as opposed to that. Well, they decided that this guy couldn't use the land the way he wanted to use it because... It was habitat for a specific species of frog. And so they told him, nope, can't use it. You can't do that. You can't do what you want to do with your private property because it would endanger these frogs. The problem was the frogs uh, not only didn't live on the land in question, they never had. There were none of those frogs anywhere near here. And so you had this regulatory taking thing. And so this went to the Supreme Court of the United States. It was actually argued this week. And that was the pit that I played for you at the top of the top of the show was the the attorney defending the government's position on this was, well, you know, it, it could we could have frogs there with reasonable effort and Justice Gorsuch yeah, will define reasonable and they couldn't they couldn't define reasonable. They absolutely could not. They were like, well, you know, in Canada, they do. Anyway, the uh, the court ruled unanimously that. No, that's a regulatory taking, and you can't just take people's land because you say that with, quote-unquote, reasonable effort, it could be something else. There are no frogs here. There never have been. And so the Supreme Court unanimously shot down the uh, the taking of that land via regulatory control. So that was good. Got to like that. They also heard this week the, the, the Tim's case, and we've talked about the Tim's case. In the past, this is the story of the man, the young man whose father died, and he used the money to buy a very expensive SUV. And 
also sold some drugs and got caught selling drugs. And they took his SUV, which was completely unrelated to the case, as a civil forfeiture, a taking, as you will. And this has gone to the Supreme Court under the Eighth Amendment. The only question the court was asked was, does, is the Eighth Amendment's prohibition against excessive fines incorporated against the states or not? But it also kind of fell under the Fifth Amendment because the, they're taking things. They are taking property in the, in the concept of civil forfeiture. They are calling it a fine. And governments are enriching themselves, folks. They really are. This was the whole issue in Bell, California. Those of you who remember that whole story down there, that whole just ridiculous story of this city council and city manager who were just getting rich. That's what they were doing. They were stealing people's property and then selling it into wit cars. They were pulling over cars for ridiculous reasons, taking them, knowing that the people involved couldn't pay the fines because the fines were ridiculously high. And so they would sell it and then they would keep the prop. They would use the profits from these sales. This little town of Bell, California, they would use these profits in the millions to pad their salaries and their retirement benefits. It was outrageous. This happens with the civil forfeiture stuff a lot. Um, and, and, and you get into this whole idea here where the governments are basically finding reasons to take people's property. And so the Supreme Court heard that case yesterday. And I think, for me, I, I, you know, I, I read this stuff because it's interesting to me. I read this stuff because I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And there was a little passage yesterday, and unfortunately, we don't have the audio yet, where Justice Breyer was questioning the, the, uh, the government's position. This isn't a problem. Well, it's, I got to say, in your view, a civil forfeiture, forfeiture is not an excessive fine. Is that correct? The reply was, yes, that is true. So the judge went on, justice went on. So what is to happen if a state needing revenue says anyone who speeds has to forfeit the Bugatti, Mercedes, or special Ferrari, or even jalopy uh, that they happen to be driving in because it was because they were speeding. And do you know what the response to the, the attorney arguing the case was? Quote, well, you know, the answer is yes. Justice Breyer said, is it yes? He said, yes, it's forfeitable. The argument of the state of Indiana was that if you're speeding five miles an hour over the state, over the state speed limit, and the state has decided that this is a reasonable fine, and the state has decided that they need the revenue, they can take your car for speeding, folks. Now, if that's not an excessive take, if that's not a taking private property for public use, you know, funding the government... I don't know what is. Now, of course, the question here is whether or not that's an excessive fine. So that's going in under the Eighth Amendment rather than the Fifth Amendment. But you can see the relative comparison here. You can see how these two things are related. Can you not? And all of this, of course, comes about because of the Fourteenth Amendment's doctrine of incorporation, which goes back to that. I I found in the Eighth Amendment case, by the way, in this further in this case uh, for Indiana, there was a... A fascinating discussion here about the fact that basically everyone knows that this Eighth Amendment is going to be incorporated. That that there's no, as of right now, today, there has been no official incorporation of the Eighth Amendment. Believe it or not, that's pretty much the only thing that isn't that in the Seventh Amendment. But during the during the argument, the court made it, it made it clear that it will almost certainly rule that the excessive fine clause does indeed apply to the states, which is good. That's good. The um, it's hard to say what else they could do with this, but the judges all seem to favor who spoke. All remember, one of them doesn't. Uh, Clarence Thomas never asks any questions. It would be uh, all of them seem to think that it was anonymous to incorporate all. It was weird if you if you incorporate virtually all of the Bill of Rights against the states, uh, but leave out the excessive fine clause. That just didn't make any sense. Justices seem to agree on this fundamental point. Point Neil Gorsuch put it simply, quote, we all agree that the excessive this is what he said during the arguments. OK, quote, we all agree that the excessive fines clause is incorporated against the states. <laughs> OK, the question before the court is. Is the Eighth Amendment incorporated? Justice 
Gorsuch said, we all agree that the excessive fine clause is incorporated. And nobody on the court objected. Nobody said, oh, excuse me, Justice, we don't all agree to that. So you can pretty much guess that there's a, uh, let's see, Brett Kavanaugh said, quote, isn't it too late in the day to argue that any of the Bill of Rights are not incorporated? And in fact, I discovered during my research, and it's something that I did not have time to go on for, apparently the lower courts have incorporated the Third Amendment. I didn't know that. So I need to go back and do some reading on that one. That'll be a fascinating little jaunt into some history there as well. You know, whether or not this will rein in states or not, whether or not it will cause states to pause in their takings and in their excessive fines, and I still think it's a taking. I see the argument for excessive fines, but and I'm glad they went that way because the Eighth Amendment, the excessive fines needed to be incorporated uh, officially, even though, as the judge said, we already know it is. But but at the same time, it is a taking. And, and, and it's a taking for the specific cause of funding the government. And that's, again, what the judge was talking about. If the government decides that it needs revenue and, and they pull you over for five miles an hour over the speed limit and take your car because they need that revenue to sell your, you know, sell your car and gain revenue, is that, you know, is that legit? And, of course, in this, the state of Indiana argued that it is. Sure, that's, that's legit, says the state of Indiana. Okay. <laughs> glad i don't live in indiana huh? but what's to stop a state what's to stop a government from doing that and that's that's one of those things where if your state legislature had passed such a law up until the court officially issues its ruling and based on what Brad uh, gorsuch said yesterday i would think that there are a lot of state capitals today where governments are looking at this going mm, well you know, they haven't officially put pen to paper yet, but we know it's coming. This one's this one's done. It is incorporated. We better start getting our getting our laws in line with that. Um, I, I, if you happen to be one of those states, I guess they're going to start thinking twice about those things. And that's good. Whether or not it will affect their uh, takings clause on land and, and that sort of thing. I don't know. I don't know if these governments will ever learn this lesson because governments tend to think in that time frame well how can i how can i benefit a lot of people who will vote for me at the expense of a few people who won't vote for me anyway well, i'll just take their land and use it for something else whether you whether you believe the gm plant closings are political whether you believe they're economical whatever really sidelight to this discussion which is that the lesson here is if the government takes something and then doesn't use it properly or doesn't use it the way they say they're going to use it, or it turns out that the plans that they had for using it were completely corrupt, what should happen? Who's accountable for this? Who in Michigan is going to be held accountable for the fact that GM is closing this plant? Who in, who in New London, Connecticut is held accountable for the fact that they took this land and nothing ever happened? Those are questions that should be asked. Whether or not they will be asked is is completely, you know, that's a that's a different story altogether. And I don't know. I don't know. The Supreme Court also this week did not hear a case of interest to us, but it is a case that 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 has drawn much attention in the Ninth Circuit. And it deals with these children, these kids, allegedly. Uh, who filed this lawsuit against the United States government on behalf of them themselves, claiming that their rights to life, liberty, and property are being violated because they because of global warming. And if you recall, we've actually talked about this case somewhat in the past, the, the Giuliani case, Giuliana, not Giuliani, Giuliani with a J, Giuliana with a J. I'm having problems talking this morning. Uh, they've talked about this case where the, the this idea that 21 young people are suing the government to do something about global warming. The problem, of course, being this, it's a little broad there. And both the Obama administration and the Trump administration have uh, vigorously tried to explain to the courts that this is a this is a really bad idea. I mean, number one, it's clearly the court delving into politics this is a political decision not a legal decision and 
even if these kids win, let's say this goes to trial and these kids win, what exactly are we supposed to do about it? How are we, there's, there's no way to, to rationally uh, decide this. The court, uh, the Ninth Circuit Court, actually district court in Oregon, allowed the case to go forward. But this past week, the, the government made it clear Thanksgiving Eve that this isn't going to happen. A not-too-subtle rebuke from the United States Supreme Court and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. So it wasn't just the Supreme Court saying, hey, dummy, no. It was the Circuit Court, the Ninth Circuit Court, saying, hey, dummy, uh, no, this isn't going to happen. Uh, it, it, the, the judge has now placed this trial on permanent hold to allow for an appeal of the court's denial to the government's motion to dismiss the cause, which is a, a lot of words to just say, look, this this case is not going anywhere. And even if you win, it's you're you're going to create more problems than you solve. The whatever the threats that are posed by climate change, the there are audacious and aggressive claims in the in the in the lawsuit that somehow or another the plaintiff's substantive due process as to rights to life, liberty, and property are being failed to uphold by the United States government. Well, you gotta have to prove that. How are you gonna do that? The federal government sought to have the claims dismissed on multiple grounds, and again, this is two administrations, the Obama administration and the Trump administration have both done this, claiming that they lack standing, that the claims are non-justiciable political questions, and they don't state a claim for which relief could be granted. I mean, again, what how, what exactly do you want us to do here? What exactly do you want solved? I mean, how are we supposed to do this? At least from a justice standpoint, there aren't a lot of things that make sense in this, and there are a lot of things that can be done to make that happen. So that case has been on hold, and that's just that's just four little examples of this past week of the things that are happening in the courts, whether state or federal, that affect our day to day lives. I mean, I don't even want to. I don't even want to speculate as to what would have happened had this Giuliani case gone through and and they won. I mean, can you imagine the the, the systems that would have had to be put in place to meet whatever some judge decides is is the relief sought after here? And you talk about a takings case. Holy crap. We've seen where the courts have ruled that regulatory takings are not uh not always right. We've seen where governments, state governments, are going to be reined in on their excessive fines. And, and of course, we've seen the damage that governments do when they do these eminent domain takings. And I, I think that the lesson to that should be that we, the people, ought to be paying attention and we ought to be holding politicians accountable. Somebody should have said back in 1981 in Michigan, all right, so what happens if this doesn't work? What happens if in 40 years they close the plant? Will enough, by the way, the jobs were never, the jobs that had been originally promised never came to be. Less than half of what they actually promised came to be. Who's going to be held accountable for that? We don't know. That's maybe the lesson that we need to learn is that we, the people, need to be more virtuous and more involved in what's going on. And not just let governments run ramshod, roughshod over us. Again, the only reason they do it is because we let them get away with it. The only reason there are Supreme Court cases or even court cases involved here is because we let them do it. Maybe, maybe that's the real lesson in all of this, and maybe that's what we ought to be learning. I guess that's what I've been trying to say for the better part of 10 years now on Constitution Thursday is what's wrong with our Constitution? When people ask me that all the time, Dave, where did it start going wrong? It started going wrong the day after it was signed the day after it was ratified because we the people haven't lived up to our part of the bargain we haven't done our part because we're satisfied with politicians who don't follow the process who who simply go off the reservation and start doing what they want to do because it makes them popular or grants them votes and if we're beneficiaries of that why would we object and if we're the victims of that well See what happens to us. We get, we get run over. 
It's not really, not really uh, looked at too harshly, is it? Those are things we got to think about. And this has really been the lesson of Constitution Thursday for the past nine years is that it's, it's up to we the people doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. It doesn't mean we have to do everything that that I want or everything you want. What it means is we have agreed on a process by which we resolve those things, a process by which we change from a country that has slaves to a country that doesn't, a process by which not everybody gets to vote to a process where everybody does, a process by which presidents can run internally to a process where they can't. If we follow the process, we'll be fine. I've said this from day one. If we follow the processes, we'll be fine. It's when we don't follow the processes that things go awry. When government starts to become tyrannical. People start using the force of government to take other people's things for promises upon which they can't deliver. Or to fund themselves over and over again. It's things to think about. I gotta get running. I don't know if we're ever going to get back to ratification. I really want to because I've, I've done so much research on Rhode Island, which is fascinating. And we still haven't finished Virginia. We're only two-thirds of the way through Virginia. I don't know if we're ever going to get back to that, but I'll figure something out. All right, got to get running. Take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life you love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there. So don't pass up those opportunities. You don't want to have that regret. Plausibly Live, I'm Dave Bowman, and this is my show. The Dave Bowman Show, right here on the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. We're here every Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time or on demand at thedavebowmanshow.com or facebook.com slash Show or podcast99.org where you can download us on iTunes. If you do, would you leave us a rating and a review? We'd greatly appreciate it. And by we, I mean me. It's not the royal we, but I guess it is in a way. Anyway. Have a wonderful rest of your Thursday, everybody, and we'll see you tomorrow for a Friday episode of The Dave Bowman Show right here on the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. show is a slippery fish entertainment production for the podcast 99 internet radio network for more information or to complain about how the show offended you the text or voicemail number is 209-565-DAVE for more information about the show log on to the dave bowman show.com hey, i'm gonna go do something productive i'm gonna go watch television